This is JVL here with my best friend, Ted Johnson of The Bulwark, and, oh, and also some other people, <laughs> Sarah Longwell, and Sarah's very special guest, Lauren, Hi. niece Lauren. Hi, Lauren. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Welcome to the show. Thank uh, you. So I wanted to talk about uh, TPP and the Trans-Pacific uh, Trade uh, uh, Treaty that fell out, fell apart, really, after the, the Obama administration. What are your thoughts? I'm, ki- I'm kidding. I, I did not bring <laughs> I'm sorry. You're supposed to be laughing, Lauren. This is funny. This is a bit. Uh, so where are you visiting us from? Are you in from California? Uh, Colorado. Colorado. Uh, are you missing snow out there right now? Yeah. Yeah. We're getting a big storm. So are you sad to be missing the storm or glad to be missing it? Very glad. Very glad. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, what what grade are you in? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm in sixth grade. I'm 12 years old. And I have a 14-year-old brother named Ethan. Wow. All right. Uh, is he a good brother, a good big brother, or a bad big brother? Um... Mostly good, but he has his very bad days. Oh, yeah. Especially once they hit teenagers, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. The big brothers, once they... my So my, uh, my older girl is your age, and when her older brother hit 13, she just started rolling her eyes constantly, and she's like, what is this? Why is he so moody? Perhaps this yeah. is something you've observed in your life. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us on the show. It was great to meet you. You too. Thank you. Bye. Sarah, what a delightful young lady. She is delightful. Yeah. Uh, do you know she's a regular Secret Pod listener? I, I did not. Hey, can you turn your game down because you're super hot for me? Yep. Um, uh, Lauren was not super hot. She's a pro. She uh, she was able to do this without there being any problems. I don't know why. My, my game jumps around. That better? Yeah, much better. Great. Uh, okay, so we got Ted with us. I wanted to bring Ted into the secret show because uh, I thought we should introduce him to everybody. And uh... I also wanted to bring Ted into the secret show. <laughs> I think it was I my idea. <laughs> Ted, how are you, buddy? I'm good, man. It's Friday, long weekend coming up. It's uh, what more can you ask for? I think the weather is yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Ted, um... I like how you have your book. Like strategically um, positioned right there. Yeah, so I, like I will fail Room Raider probably like two out of three or whatever, but I've got the plant, I've got the book, and then I've got the flag. This is as nice. good a, as it gets for like suburban basement here without uh, bringing in a contractor. <laughs> <laughs> all right so we i i want to do a sort of get to know ted chat for the back half but i want to start with some politics stuff so last night on the live stream we we popped on a thursday night bulwark right after the news had broken about kevin mccarthy going to endorse against uh against liz cheney and we had a long conversation about this era during which i wish that we had you there because what we were talking about was, should Cheney stick in the Republican primary, or should she get ahead of this and run as an independent Republican? Uh-huh. And what what do you think? You know more about this than anybody uh, at the Bulwark. I think she should drop out of the Wyoming race and uh, say that she is running for president. Um, I think it is i think look i think it's really hard 
Um, I think she's going to lose this primary, is my honest opinion. And, and I'll tell you the truth. I get asked about this a lot in the media, and I don't say that. I'm only saying it on the secret pod because this is a secret pod where we always tell the truth. Uh, but I have done a number of focus groups in the state, and you can't find a Republican to say they support her uh, anywhere. Incidentally, also can't find a Republican to support uh, shopping carts with coffee cup holders in them. People were very angry about that uh, in Jackson Hole. It is the creeping Jackson Hole uh, <laughs> mentality on the state. Um, the The Wyoming focus groups are remarkable for the specificity of Wyoming culture. So, uh, for example, this is the group where when you talk about January 6th, um, they really, really believe that it's a false flag operation, Black Lives Matter, Antifa. And one of the main reasons uh, is that they say if it was real Republicans, there would have been a lot more guns there. And uh, and so, and they just think she's a, a traitor rhino. And when you, and I, you know, it's one of those focus groups where I kind of push back and say, you know, she voted with Donald Trump from a, a just a policy standpoint far more than Elise Stefanik. And they just don't believe you. <laughs> They're just like, no, <laughs> false. Uh, she's not a real conservative. Um, and so uh, but that is because I mean, and this is where. Because they care about kitchen table issues. They well, don't, they, they're not into the, they care about real things that affect their real life. Yeah. Right? I mean, what's funny about it is just this is when people talk about real conservatives now, what they mean is, are you an America first Trump conservative? Right. Like, that's a, the whole definition has lost all meaning because, of course, by the objective conservative measurement, um, you know, we, we all know that like the conservatism we grew up with is no longer, uh, doing it so she's gonna very likely lose in this primary like that's just where we are and i think it's i think that she does want to run for president uh i think what is happening is that donald trump is very likely gonna run and and that that freezes the field essentially for all the trumpers right so like maybe ron DeSantis still challenges him that's an open question um but if it's trump like there's basically one person who gets to take trump on mano y mano and it's Liz Cheney. Like, she is the one who can do it. Now, is she going to win? I think probably not. Uh, but will she draw blood? Will she be excellent? Uh, will it be a clear articulation of the difference between sort of true conservatism, fidelity to the Constitution versus this cartoon um, authoritarianism thing that Trump's got going on? Yeah. And so what I don't want her to do, though, is is lose and then go run because Trump will spend the whole time then saying, loser from Wyoming. I beat you in Wyoming. And she should not give him that dynamic, which she should say, be able to say, we'll all know what happened. But she, we, she needs to be have something to say, which is, uh, no, I got out to challenge you right away. I always knew my purpose was clear that I needed to go and run against you and that you cannot be president again. So. so Ted, my, uh, my superpower is my ability to see the future. And I do this simply by looking at the world and figuring out for any given scenario, what is the worst possible outcome? And then I say that will happen. And 95% of the time, it turns out to be correct. Hmm. So what we are heading towards, I think, is a world in which Donald Trump is the only candidate for the Republican nomination from the Trump side. But then we have three never Trump candidates who will be Larry Hogan, uh, Chris Christie, and Liz Cheney, <laughs> all running for the 9%, you know, competing with each other for that 9% lane. Uh, 
what do you what do you think about this about the prospect of Liz Cheney challenging Trump? So I love the idea. I I want it to happen. The last thing I want is um, is a bunch of debates uh, where Trump is at the center of the stage and a bunch of um, soft Trump lovers um, who are just want some national recognition are sort of necklacing him on the stage. And then it just is a Trump show. It's a it's a charade, and then we we move on. I I like Sarah said. I think having someone who's principled and has real differences with Trump is good for the probably good for Republicans, but it's good for the country to draw a, a market line between MAGA and like what real principle conservatism looks like. Um, I, I think what I, and maybe this is a question for Sarah, actually, I, I wonder if there's kind of a Bradley effect thing happening here, where people won't admit publicly that they in a Republican place sort of locale that they will support someone who's against Trump for fear of being sort of socially ostracized. But that in the voting booth, when there's no peering eyes, if they'll then vote their values, uh, assuming that they are truly aligned to some of these, uh, you know, more conservative leaning uh, ideologies. And, and so maybe, you know, someone like Cheney has a shot maybe in Wyoming, maybe nationally, because the silent majority aren't Trump supporters who um, who are showing up to support him, but actually centrist or center right folks who are looking for a reasonable person to support, but can't say that out loud for fear of being sort of ostracized from their circles. I do not think that is true in Wyoming. Mm. I think Wyoming is a very particular place. <laughs> uh, but I think nationally, so this has always been, like I try to resist the defeatism that becomes self-fulfilling mm. uh, on some of these things because you never know what might totally radically alter the political dynamic. And I got to tell you, sometimes people just decide they like a person. And, you know, right now, Liz Cheney is presenting like something obviously that appeals to me, uh, which is a steely resolve in the face of Trump's, um, you know, January 6th uh, antics, which is not strong enough of a word. Um, but, you know, on a stage where she gets to articulate both the forcefulness of her conservative principles um, because I think she, I think she would be an excellent messenger for that. Like she can talk about it with authenticity. She is very flu. You know, we are going to be, I think, um, in a more perilous uh, place internationally. And Trump's mm. obviously going to go after her for being a neocon, a hawk, a warmonger, Cheney. But like, I don't know how it, how ultimately voters start to react when somebody demonstrates a really strong grasp of international relations. Been a while since we've had a candidate who gets up and does that in a really clear way. Um, and and she will present kind of an American strength uh, position. So I just you have to. I think Ted is is, uh, and I also think like you're right that you never know how many. Pe I think this whole time we've been trying to get a handle on who are people who are Republicans because they were there for a set of ideas that mattered to Republicans, right. and how many are just Trumpers. Now I think the party's changed over time, and that it is more Trumpers than traditional GOP types now. Mm -hmm. um, but like things are fluid and like things can change. And I just would never want to count anything out uh, at all. And and also there's always like, maybe you don't change it all at once. Maybe her running doesn't impact things immediately. Maybe she can't win. Does it have some longer term effect the way, you know, Ronald Reagan did? Like, I just, I believe that those dynamics can be influenced and I believe she's a significant enough political figure that she could do it. Hmm. Maybe the the Jesse Jackson or Howard Dean to the Bernie Sanders run, yeah, like 
proceeding on ideas, but not not the right moment or the right person, maybe. Uh, I think that's it's right. I mean, we, what? How much is our like? One of the things I just try not to be obtuse about the fact that like our politics just radically changed over the last five years. Yeah. So like the idea that it couldn't keep changing in any number of dynamic directions, mm. it would seem um, it would seem silly to count that out, while still being realistic about where we are. <laughs> so. Sarah, what do you think the chances are that we do, as I was sort of half-jokingly suggesting, that we wind up with, like, two or three people in the tiny never-Trump lane? I mean, I think that's the big problem. Like, I, I think that it's it's funny. Uh, you know, you've got Sununu, Hogan, and Ducey who have all declined to run for Senate because they know that Donald Trump will spend the entire time beating up on them. And who wants that? Uh, that doesn't sound fun. Uh, Mitch McConnell drags me into this race and I got to take beatings from, Don, you know, Donald Trump the whole time. But it, and I think that they just all have decided, like, they should be the change maker in the party. Like, there's this belated. Don't forget like, Chris Christie. It could be Chris Christie. Uh, so, but I just think there's this there's this belated sense that everybody's like, well, the way to change this is to run for president and make that argument. Um, I love Larry Hogan. I am not as big a fan these days of Ducey. I think he was really weak around cyber ninjas, and I think these uh, he he did a good job certifying the election. But that's like the bare minimum. I'm only giving out so much credit for those things. Really like Sununu. Would love uh, would would think he's good. Think he's actually been pretty honest. Um, but I do think that like. These dudes have to understand, like, this is Liz's. Like, Liz has done the clear, hard work. Um, and if she wants that lane, they should all give it to her. Yeah, no, I mean, historically, Republican men have always been really good <laughs> about recognizing the contributions of women. I think that's a totally reasonable thing to say. Uh, well, if they listen to the Secret Podcast, I'm just telling you, that lane is Liz's. Chris Christie should go home. Nobody wants Chris Christie. Yeah. So, Ted, one of the ongoing arguments Sarah and I have is about who who really deserves credit. And I, after initially being quite skeptical of Liz Cheney, because I was like, really? It took this long to, to turn? Uh, I have come around on her because she was willing to set her entire career and even her family's legacy on fire over this stuff. And so I, I think God love her. Totally. Larry Hogan, on the other hand, I don't know. Um, that guy, not only did he, uh, he, he openly campaigned for the two Georgia senators uh, right up until January 5th when they lost even as they were both pushing the big lie. And I, he didn't vote for Joe Biden, right? He, who did he write in? He wrote in, did he write in Thomas Paine or Ronald Reagan or something, right? <laughs> and I just look at that. And so Larry Hogan may be never Trump, but he is always Republican. And I don't know that that works in, for me at least, in terms of welcoming somebody onto the, the good guy side. Because somebody who is like, yeah, no, Donald Trump is terrible, but sure, I support Kevin McCarthy. You know, Donald Trump is terrible, but, uh, you know, the, those two crazies in Georgia, yeah, I, we got to elect them. It's so important we have divided government. That's just bullshit. No? Am I wrong? Uh, I mean, look, he's a politician. And, I mean, uh, he, is, he is taking chances where the benefits outweigh the cons. Um, and he's being a good team player when when it, when required. I think he sort of approaches the party like if we can just you know 
excise the virus to sort of like get rid of the, the head, then all of the infections, all the people infected by, by, the, by Trump will regain their principles and values and we can sort of steer the, the party back to some sense of normalcy. So I don't think, you know, he probably thinks Kevin McCarthy is like a good dude, if not for the fact that Kevin McCarthy is, is a sycophant for Trump right now. You take Trump out of the equation, maybe he sees something redeemable there. The thing that, that always in, has intrigued me about Hogan, and I mentioned this last night on the on the podcast, that he he does well with black voters in Maryland. And black voters in Maryland are not, you know, Republican adjacent. They are they are Democrats. And in the last election, um, he won almost 33 percent of black voters. I think it was like 30, 31, something like that, um, despite running against a black man who used to be the head of the NAACP. And so there's a message there, you know, look, I'm I'm a guy, I'm conservative, um, but I have broad appeal. Um, I don't follow the new hottest thing in the party. And the last thing I'll say on him is that when he when his um, his policy preferences bump up against what the state wants, uh, for example, on things like a, a voting rights bill or civil rights, those kinds of things, um, he won't veto what the state assembly has done. He'll just sort of write a, an accompanying note and sort of keep his voice out of it. And that if you're going to be a Republican who wants a broad tent and you disagree with some issue on civil rights, um, the, the key, thing, especially when you can't defeat, just be quiet and don't make it a, an axis of division. Just allow the thing to happen that's going to happen anyway. And to those folks that normally wouldn't support you, they will see your non-interference as a step in, the, in a good direction, as opposed to sort of all out war to undo the thing that they think is, is very important. So he's savvy, I guess, is the, the, the concise way of saying what I'm trying to say here is uh, he, he's politically savvy and um, he's, I think he's holding his cards close. Ted, my man. <laughs> yeah, I, don't I don't even know if I like the guy. I don't even know if I like the guy, but he's, he's a savvy politician. You got to respect that a little bit. Yeah, JVL, can I can I just add something to this? To sure. Ted's incredibly excellent and true point. Uh, We're never having two optimists on the show. <laughs> well, that's my problem. I don't know if I would ever vote for the guy, matter of fact, but I would love to see him against, you know, a principal Democrat and let's have policy conversations. So here's the thing. There is a difference between the cynical, nihilistic way in which a lot of Republicans are 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 doing the like anti-anti thing and the fence sitting. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's uh, entirely Larry. I don't think that's what Larry Hogan is doing or I wouldn't peg him with that. And the reason is what Ted just said, which is that he is flexible on sort of both ends of the spectrum, right? He is trying to be a, a good teammate to Republicans who he views as more mainstream. And I, JVL, you know, I agree with you. Like, I would not have done that. I do not like that Larry Hogan did that. Uh, I think it's not, I think it's the wrong choice. But at the same time, right, he is trying to build himself he, a big kind of window in the center that extends and must include some people on the right uh, if he's going to be an effective Republican that works across the aisle. And his whole thing is this centrist pragmatism. And he gives the left a lot. Right. He gives the left uh, a lot in his state. He, as Ted said, he's extremely popular with black people. He's extremely popular, popular with women. Um, and like the dude is like 
five seven and bald and like you know it's not like he like he's not like he's like the coolest guy in the world so everybody just loves him women think he's hot dudes want to be him like it's not that he's just like a nice decent human who's really trying to work with everybody and and so I give him a little bit of latitude on some of that stuff that I wouldn't give other people because he really is trying to build a broad coalition for himself to like be part of. So when he was on the Sunday shows this weekend, he he had a line where he said that he he wants the Republican Party to get back to being the party of truth and freedom. And I thought to myself, so first of all, the Republican Party is is not the party of either of those things right now. And in fact, it is by its own lights, you know, even on its own terms, it is against both of those things. But we do have a political party in America, which is currently right now in favor of both of those things. It's the Democratic. Why, why isn't he just a conservative? This is I don't understand mm. these people whose self-image is so wrapped up in whether they're wearing a blue T-shirt or a red T-shirt that the idea of switching jerseys is is like saying, would you like to live on Mars to them? Why? What, why? What is it with these people? Look, here's here's what I think some of what's going on with Hogan. Um, he's a Republican in Maryland. And so he can only uh, do so much and go so far if if and my concern about him is um, if he becomes president one day. But let's just say Hogan isn't Maryland. He's in Mississippi. Is he the same guy? Is he the same guy that can win a third of black folks in Mississippi when he definitely doesn't need that support in, in a very, very red state? Um, you know, is Chris Christie the same guy in Alabama that he was in New Jersey when uh, it's a very different demographic, very different culture? And so what these I see Hogan as reading the the room of, of Maryland and saying this is the kind of Republican that can win here. Um, if if he ascends to the next level, um, is he the same dude or, or does the calculus change based on Republican presidential primaries and then how what you know what the electorate a winning electorate needs to look like for him to become president someday. And that's the that's the sticky part here with guys like Hogan, who are very savvy at the state level. Um, when the when the environment changes, that savviness also requires them to change, too, unless they're more to principle. And that's the that's an unknown, I think. And so to your point, why doesn't he, he put on just to wear the red T-shirt and follow the team out? Um, he can't do that in Maryland, but not doing that in Maryland mean that means that when it's time to do that, and for example, a presidential primary in 50 states and districts, et cetera, um, will he don the T-shirt and become a different person? Or, but why uh, should, why wouldn't he just become a conservative Democrat? In he'll lose. This is what I don't understand. Like, you know, like. This is my least favorite line of JVL political fantasy wish casting stuff that everybody just changes teams. Uh, I'll tell you, like, uh, can I take a crack at this answer? The first thing is, is that Larry Hogan is actually more conservative, personally. He's personally more conservative than his uh, leadership in Maryland would dictate because he's also a compromising pragmatist. And because he's a compromising pragmatist, people view him as, like, a real squishy moderate. And, and he's... I mean, I don't think he's like extreme at all, but I, I know Larry a little bit and uh, he is he is more conservative than he governs as an accommodation to the people in his state. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing. Second thing is like the idea. I agree that like politics shouldn't be like your, your personality or identity shouldn't be so subsumed by it that you can't move along with it. But like 
the dude worked for every Republican Reagan administration, like his entire network and world. I, I sometimes I think you just think it is as simple as taking a jersey on or off, and uh, the journey doesn't work that way. And then also, my guess is is that it's not like these guys haven't taken watched the trajectory of the Republican Party and given a quick glance at like, well, how how would it work if I ran as an independent, or how would it work if I ran? Uh, like, you know, is there space? For, and like, they watch what's happening with the Democratic Party and they don't think so. And they don't think they can get elected there either. Now, I'm not positive that's true. Like, I think I could probably try and make a case um, to folks that uh, there's more sensible people on the center left. Uh, but I don't know that he'd get, I mean, I, you know, Biden can get through a Democratic primary being Biden and Obama's vice president and a bunch of other things. I don't think that you can switch parties and be Larry Hogan and get through a Democratic primary. Uh, I just I just don't think you can. Yeah. And who's the guy in Florida that's done exactly this? That's switched parties like every other election. Um, is it uh, Chris? Chris? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, do do we I mean, it's it's been useful for him. It's uh, but. Is that the kind of is that the model for the kind of politician we want who sort of reads the tea leaves and and um, puts on a different T-shirt based on where he thinks he can win? I, I don't know. I, I do think this is the last thing I'll say on this. I do think there we one of the problems in our politics now is we don't have enough liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats that there's there's not enough people around the center. Um, everyone sort of pushing to the polls. So I like the fact that that Hogan is sort of more to the center than the rest of the party is right now. Um, and I would love, you know, if he were to change parties and become sort of the center on the left side, fine. But that would leave the void on the right. And that's no good. And so to the extent we can get more people off the, the edges there and to the center, it's I think it's good for our politics, our two party politics. All right. And with that, no more serious political talk. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do story time with with Ted. Oh, um, Sarah, would you like to go first? Would you like to to lob some some balls in here for Ted to take fungos off of, or would you like me to? Oh no, I got I got an opener. Hey Ted, yes. we're so glad you <clears throat> decided to join the bulwark. But tell us why you did. Yeah, so look, when we talked, um, th this is actually something I've wanted for a long time, maybe a decade. Um, I was still in the military when I first started thinking about. I wonder what it would be like to write frequently on, you know, just opine about things and frankly, think out loud. Um, and it was a long road to hoe. You, if, you know, when you start writing and no one knows who you are, you pitch a million things and everyone says no, or they just ignore you. Um, so as my, I started to write in more places, um, I hated the pitching. I hated having like gatekeepers who said what you could and couldn't write or what, what's the voice for this publication and what isn't. So I've been for a couple of years now, been on the lookout for an opportunity where I could have a perch of sorts and just think out loud about whatever was was uh, interesting to me. And so the bulwark is the perfect place. It's it's new, which I love. I, I, there's not like this um, organizational history or, or culture that I have to conform to. I can just bring ideas in. Um, it's willing to engage across difference, which I think is not happening enough of. A lot of publications, very popular, are just talking to people who already agree with everything the writers say. Um, and and then the crew um it's a it's a like a great crew of thinkers and writers who challenge me in my thinking and preconceptions and i hope that i i will bring some of the same uh for them so 
for all those reasons and more uh, is it's why I joined. And you know, most of all, it's it's the writing and the thinking out loud that that the space to do so is just invaluable. So super appreciative. So can you take listeners on your journey, which I find fascinating as the child of IBMers, which is a whole cultural thing all on its own, That's right? Because you and I are the same age. And so you were a kid when IBM was like the most important company in America, basically, right. through to, to historically black college, to the Navy, to speech writing. Can you just like give us the dime tour on this? Because I find it fascinating and I think people will too. Yeah, absolutely. So my, my parents were first-gen college students. Uh, they both grew up the children of sharecroppers. My dad grew up poor in South Carolina, one of 11 children. My mom grew up poor in Georgia, one of eight children. And um, through, on my mom's case, just sheer work ethic and education, got a full scholarship to an HBCU in North Carolina. My dad, um, his life was after eighth grade, you go pick uh, tobacco and you know see what happens to you. And he said, yeah, I'm not doing that. So he left home and joined the Job Corps and through a very windy path, ended up at the same college as my mother. So, and then IBM was looking to diversify. They hired my parents uh, and I was born in Gaithersburg, Maryland, where they were working um, for IBM. We lived in Poughkeepsie, New York for a little while. Uh, and when I was eight, we moved to North Carolina. In North Carolina, I, I lived in a white neighborhood where I was one of very few black children there. All of my friends were white. My, I walked to the school there and, um, it was just a. I lived like Theo Huxtable for for much of my <laughs> my uh, my childhood, and and I bring this up for a couple of reasons. One is um, when I was was time to go off to college, I kind of felt like I had had it too easy, and I felt like um, I was at a crossroads. This is going to sound you know more deep than it is, but like the, I, there was a racial identity question I, I had going on with me um, because for the schools that I attended, the black kids that were there were all bused from the other side of town. And I didn't know them. They all knew each other. And I was sort of like the odd man out for, you know, in different, certainly in my classes and even socially for and until like the last few years of high school. So going to an HBCU was really a way of, of, of putting myself in an environment that I didn't grow up in, where the smartest kid in the class was a black kid and it wasn't me, you know, where when I may have an opinion, I wasn't speaking for black America. It was just like just another dude in class. So that's one reason I went to an HBCU. Um, and, and then going to the military was, um, again, I felt like I'd had it too easy and I hadn't earned what did you my major choice. in? Weren't you a comp sci major? I was a math major. A math. Uh, was, yeah, it's <laughs> unbelievable. I went there to electrical engineering, you know, the, in, in black America, there's only one job of, of a, a child that goes to college and it is not to come back home after college. And so I went <laughs> to major in the thing that would make, give me a salary. So I didn't have to go back home and my parents would be proud, et cetera. And it was electrical engineering only to find out that I loved the math and hated all the design. So the, um, as luck would have it, the, uh, my parents got a new neighbor in North Carolina and she happened to be the officer in charge of the recruiting district for the Navy in Raleigh. And when the, she found out that they had a black kid majoring in math in college, she said, oh, we've got <laughs> money. We've got money for you. Um, so when the Navy, I was accepted into this, it was a program called Bachelor Degree Completion Program. You basically enlist while you're in college. They pay you, but you just go to college. After you graduate, you go off to officer candidate school and become an officer. So with the pressure of finding a job off, I just majored in the thing that I loved, which was math. And I, I loved it until the last two years of college and I hated it. Um, 
but then off to the Navy. Now, I went to the Navy for two reasons, um, or maybe three. One was so I didn't go back home. My parents could save my kids and, you know, be proud of me. Two was um, it was a guaranteed job. I would get to travel. Um, it, there's some prestige attached to it. And three, it was like a rite of passage into manhood. And this was this was this this kind of goes back again to I, I had a very easy life. Um, it, it wasn't all flowers and roses. I mean, we we like every other family had our, our issues, but I felt like I had to earn my my place, you know, and the military was a way to do that. I planned to stay for four years and I ended up staying for 21. Um, and I got married and had kids and, uh, you know, was White House fellow, professor at the Naval War College, uh, speechwriter for the chairman. But the year I was a White House fellow, uh, the year, the, the second part of that fellowship was when Trayvon Martin was killed. And I, you know, I got three black kids, man. And I started thinking about maybe thinking about what China is doing in cyberspace isn't the most important thing I can do with my thoughts and ideas and interests. Maybe there's something else I can, I can do. And so I started uh, charting my path out of the military into this space we're in now, a place where I could, you know, use scholarship and uh, writing to think about what's happening in the country and try to to paint a vision for a better version of the America that than, that we inherited than the one we inherited. So that's sort of the windy path, you know, through grad school and retirement from the military. And now I'm at a, a think tank that's um, progressive, but not partisan. And uh, I think that's probably where my politics are sort of center left. But I just like principal people with good ideas that that will strengthen the country. And when you first got pulled into the Navy as a math guy, what did they want you? Did they want you doing like cryptography and signals intelligence or what, what did they, what, yes. what because they, they must have had ideas, right? They did. Any, yeah, anytime they, they want, get a pure math major. <laughs> they wanted me to be a pilot. Um, oh, which, a pilot? Yeah, no kidding. It sounds exciting. They wanted me to be a pilot. I was all for it. And then it turns out that my eyes, one of my eyes sits like very, like a nanometer higher than the other one, which means when you're reading instruments or you're looking at a horizon, what you think is level is actually oh. not level. So trying to land on a carrier is uh, is not a good idea for, for that. So they said, yep, your eyes are no good. Um, I went through all of officer candidate school not knowing what my job in the military would be because I had to choose another and be accepted. Um, and I just had this conversation with a guy who said, you know, there's this thing called cryptology. I hear it's like some cool John, James Bond kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, if you've got a STEM major and a language, then um, you've got a good shot. I said, dude, I was a math major and I took six years of French, you know, from high school into, to, I can't speak a lick of French, but I, I Do know. I get to drive a Lambo? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's, how I, I was a cryptologist, you know, and, uh, and cryptology became basically cyber warfare. And that's what I did for um, the bulk of my career uh, to include, you know, a very interesting four years at the National Security Agency. God, that's so cool. Yeah. It was excellent. I had a great time. I was a fact checker at a political magazine while you were doing cryptology. <laughs> I would just like to interject. You're so that, butch. Yeah, I was, I was just like to interject that at my high school, they had to invent a class for me to get through my math requirements, and it was called the history of math, so I could write papers <laughs> about math uh, because I couldn't do, like, there was no, like, algebra 2 was my limit. <laughs> like, there was no, no trig was happening for me. <laughs> Yeah, I loved calculus uh, up until calculus. But once we got there, then you get into these proofs and theorems, all the numbers disappear. I have math books where the only numbers in the entire book are on the pages or the page numbers. Everything else are letters. That's and what I'm talking about. Yeah. Maybe I could get Horrible. into that. It was terrible. It sucked. <laughs> I, 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 it was a mistake. 
I should have majored in political science. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Well, just as you know, just as somebody who did major in political science, what you can do is be on a podcast. That's right. And so we've all landed at the roughly the same That's same right. place at this point. It's a windy road. <laughs> Uh, so you you mentioned that you decided to make the career switch because you were like, okay, Trayvon Martin was killed. There's you know this reckoning on race in America, um, and so you said like, and I wanted to talk about like where America is now. So where is America right now? Yeah, you know, so one thing, and I've probably been guilty of this too, but like this whole democracies in danger stuff, I think is um, it is very very serious. But um, I don't think we're at risk of losing democracy. I think we're at risk of having like maybe a 1950s version of democracy, which was great for some folks and like horrible for others. Um, so but my, I think America is in a place where one, it's having an identity crisis. And look, we're teenagers on the world stage in terms of like how old we are as a country. Um, so it's natural that we're starting to ask, eh, you know, who, who are we? What does it mean to be American anymore when there's 330 million of us from different of races, ethnicities, regions, cultures, etc. So I think we're in a bit of, a, of an identity crisis. Um, I think because of that, the democracy that we love, we actually don't know if we want that kind of democracy when the face of the, of the faces of democracy are radically different from its founding. And so what does it mean um, when a man with a Muslim name with a Kenyan father um, raised in Hawaii and lived in Indonesia, um, who's accused of being, you know, a socialist and a Muslim uh, is now the president of the United States. And there was a backlash to that, not because he was anti-democratic, but just because he was just like a new face of democracy with, um, and I don't know that the country was, I think they were proud of the moment, but I don't know if they were ready to be governed by, um, by, by a different representation of the American identity. So that's where I think we are now. We're trying to work through issues of inequality, uh, issues of, of racial difference, and then what governance looks like when we try to close inequality and be more inclusive. And there, the, the, the change that requires, there's a lot of resistance to it, not necessarily out of prejudice or hatred, but out of a, a fear of the unknown, of, of what happens next when the country looks radically different from the way it, it always has. Hey, can I push on this Obama question? Because I, I like agree, I guess, generally that there was that 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 I would never deny, especially at this point after doing all the focus groups and listening to American Republican voters, that there's not a racial component uh, to this. However, uh, I also like. Do you think that Joe Biden is getting like an easier ride than Barack Obama did? Like he's the oldest, whitest dude on the planet, maybe. And I don't know that he's getting, uh, you know, red carpet treatment from yeah. from Republicans. I think 2008 Biden would have gotten red carpet treatment. 2020 Biden couldn't because it's post Obama. The, Obama changed the the parties um, where they sort of align themselves. Um, and post Obama, Biden couldn't be who he was pre Obama. And, and that's why I think he's having a rougher go of it. It's less of a racial thing, of course, but the, the parties are further apart now than they were in 08 on a range of issues, even just the signaling, like the bumper stickers sort of, of things. So I, I, I mean, I don't want to overstate in this, but like Obama did everything you want, like in his 2004 DNC speech, that was like a very civil religious kind of Kennedy Reagan-esque kind of call to unity. And he continued that voice through his presidency, both terms, I think. And, but as soon as he says, 
oh, you know, the Cambridge police act stupid, you know, acted stupidly when they arrested Skip Gates or Trayvon Martin could have been my son. Um, or, you know, the preacher that married me said some stupid things. And now I have to explain away why I didn't run out of the church that that I you know was a member of. Um, it racialized everything else. And so healthcare, um, you know, he drone striked like crazy across the Middle East. Um, but it was he was weak, you, you know, uh, even though he was, you know, I, so I, I think a lot of the pushback to Obama was um, may began from race and then grew into these other things that now Biden is is being punished for. He's sort of been caught up in this wave. Uh, and so I, I think he was transformative in a number of ways. And this is one of the ones that, you know, again, sort of pushes against the, what we think of when we think of American identity and who we are as a people. The challenging of, of that is just it just takes some time to, to get through those growing pains. I have a question. Do you think that and I, I feel like JVL might want to jump in here because JVL has lots of cr criticisms of Obama. Uh, and I would push back on some of the Obama things you just said just as mm -hmm. a practical matter of, like, I think 2004 Obama had me being like, yes, what's the thrill up the leg? Loved the, we've got gay friends in the red states. And we've got, I like remember it, it had me on my feet. Um, but like, that's not to me like 2009 Obama. Um, like I, 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 and, and, but I, my but my question is this point about the identity and like the racialization of Obama. Do you think like if Liz Cheney runs, will the will she is a woman? Will the whole will the prism always be through the prism of her gender? Like, do you think that anybody who's not a white male that and they're so they're the first? Um, will they? Will they be seen through the prism of race, gender, uh, sexual identity? Let's say it's Pete Buttigieg mm -hmm. and he's a white guy and he's gay. Like, is the referendum always going to be about their identity or is there something specific about race you think that makes it different? No, no, I think I don't. So I do think race is specific and distinct, but I, I don't think it is an anomaly. I think, you know, anytime there's a, a new identity uh, that's at the cusp of, you know, the precipice of, of national leadership, it will be in a much larger hurdle than it would be for someone who's already sort of crossed the threshold. Um, I don't think so. So the first woman, her hurdle is going to be a, a, like Obama's was on race. And, you know, if she happens to be a woman of color, then, you know, that hurdle will be just a little bit higher. Uh, and in terms of sexual orientation, if it's a, you know, if it's Pete, white, male and gay, that's a specific kind of hurdle. But if it's a, a woman who is gay or a woman of color who's gay, they're different. You know, the, I think the hurdles are higher. And it kind of goes back to what you said earlier in the podcast. People just like they go with who they like. And if you know, if they don't if they don't know people of color, if they don't know people who are, who are gay, if they don't know a woman who they you know trust with with their lives or the leadership to sort of make all the financial decisions and, you know, like these kinds of things, um, then they're just going to be a, a little bit a little bit resistant to it when when it came to putting women on ships the navy was like eh, we don't we don't know okay well they can be on ships but i don't know about this whole command thing okay they can have command but only of like the ships that carry gas and supplies like the grocery ship but not the ones that have tomahawks okay they can have tomahawks but maybe they can't do the carrier it was always like you know it, every time they broke a new uh, they, they crossed a, a threshold into a new level of professionalism or professional accomplishment there was another hurdle they had to go over. And I think that's that will be the case for the you know first openly gay, you know, four star admiral. Um, it will be a hurdle. And and uh, this, this is just the way 
the, the nation operates. Identity, it, it matters way more than it should, especially for a nation that's supposed to be meritocratic, that says all of us are created equal, that believes in colorblindness, et cetera. Um, when the rubber heats the, meets the road, it's never, ever, ever, ever that easy. Um, and Hillary Clinton learned that, Shirley Chisholm learned that, you know, Geraldine Ferraro and Sarah Palin, like they, they, everyone who's been at the cusp has learned that. Kamala Harris is learning a tough lesson and should Liz Cheney, um, you know, be successful and become the presidential the Republican nominee in 24, she's going to learn a lesson. I think even one, uh, a different one than that Hillary Clinton had to learn because of the party she's coming through. Uh, all of these things are true, but the problems are wildly exacerbated by the electoral college system which creates such an enormous imbalance so that you are handing outsized power along the order of magnitude of almost like plus five points nationally mm. to a homogenous block of people who are homogenous by uh, their race and their education levels and the setting in which they live. And so by handing outsized electoral power to a bunch of high school educated rural whites, I know you don't like this, Sarah. Oh my, but what's I'm sorry. <laughs> if anybody, you're not, I'm not on video, I realize. So the, the, my eyes rolling out of my head is not visible to the general public. By, by handing what you, what it means is that uh, anybody who's coming from the other side of this doesn't have to just get to like 50 plus one. They've 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 they have a much much higher hurdle to to win. Anyway, we don't need to argue about that, Sarah, because this is TED time. You don't. It need is to TED. Be... I'm not doing this with you today, JVL. You are not so, doing that with me. So jumping in on that, look, I think um, I, I'm not for direct democracy, presidential elections. I don't think it should be just popular vote, but I am for proportional electoral college votes. Um, what Maine does, what Nebraska does, um, I would love to see a state not like states not having winner take all for the electors but having proportional um, distribution of their electors based on the popular vote of the state and i say this because um what right now in 2024 what is the rationale for any republican to campaign in california uh you know, trump lost california in, in 20 by what like four or five million votes uh but if with proportional distribution of the electors, it matters whether you lose by 5% or by 40%. And so you, it forces everyone to campaign everywhere. It means Democrats, you know, after the primaries are over, they got to go back to Mississippi. They got to go back to Alabama. They got to go to, um, you know, to, to, to Texas, et cetera, because losing by less means you get more electors, which can lead to 270. So I am for that, but I'm not for just strict popular vote because look, the founders were onto something. Um, the tyranny of the majority is real. Uh, and I don't think that, you know, certain states should run roughshod over others just because they've got more people. I, I do think that there's a sort of, uh, there, there's value in protecting the voices of those that are in I, the flyover. I am not for strict popular vote either. And these things shift and I assume that at some point in the indeterminate future, uh, the problems that the Electoral College has created for us that exist right now and have for the last 20 years will have changed and will have different problems. And any course correction you make now is going to create uh, other unintended consequences and problems. 
I, I just think it's important to recognize that it does create this wild market distortion in American politics right now. That's mm. all. That's all, Sarah. I'm not saying we have to change our norms. Our norms are so precious. <laughs> so precious. Whatever okay. system we come up with, it's going to get gained. Um, and so all we can do is fix the last problem and anticipate the next. That's right. Yeah. All right. So good, good show. Uh, we did a little movie talk yesterday. You know, Ted, where are you on musicals? Do you love musicals? No. No. I do have Don't to say, let me down here, Ted. Don't let me so, down. Sarah, do on the show last night, I asked Ted uh, his three favorite movies, and I, I could be wrong, but I don't believe... Now, he did not have a comic book movies as any of his, his movies that he liked, but none of them really dealt with the interior lives of women. Would you like to grill Ted on why he doesn't <laughs> care about movies with strong female characters? Ted, what were your movies? Um, Harlem Nights. Harlem Nights. Scarface. Yeah. And Love Jones, who, which has a very strong female lead. What's Love Jones? Yeah, it's a it's a mid '90s um, movie about these two twenty you know writers. One's a writer, one's a photographer in their twenties. Black kids from Chicago, um, and they're falling in and out of love, sort of dealing with professional life and dealing with identity crises and dealing with love. Oh, so the woman's defined by her relationship to a man, Ted? Oh no, she's actually defined by her art. <laughs> Good you know, save. you know, Ted. You know, Ted. Your movies. Here's the thing. What I like about your choices is that, like, I haven't necessarily heard of all of them. So, like, JVL's choices are all like the Batman trilogy, uh, and or the Spider-Man unfair. trilogy. And he's going to try so to explain wrong. why there's like deep meaning to all of this. I'm sure. But whenever I suggest maybe that my favorite Tell movie is like the Prime of Miss Jean Brody or something, you know, from like he basically mocks me for not having favorite <laughs> movies from this century, which uh, is fine. It's fine. But just because he hates movies that deal with the interior lives of women uh, mm. is not my fault. That's right. You're yeah. confusing me with Sonny Bunch. He Sarah. always says this. This is deeply unfair. Yeah. <laughs> deeply, deeply so are, unfair. Are you guys musical folks? I like. I I can't. I can't do any of them. I, I, there's not a single one that I like. Unfortunately, I I like some musicals. Sarah Maybe is Willy a Wonka. sucker for musicals. What what is Ted? What do you think is the 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 like either deficiency in your soul or like where's the problem <laughs> with you that that you wouldn't enjoy the spontaneous bursting into song to tell mm. a story? What, yeah, what, that, it's, it's that. It's it's that part of it. It's the spontaneous version <laughs> of the song part. <laughs> the storylines are good. The characters are fascinating. And just mm-hmm, as I'm getting mm-hmm. into it, there's like the music. They so, start to sing. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. There, there is one musical. That I, I said none. There's that's a lie. There's one. Little Shop of Horrors, the the 1980s version, Rick the Moranis. Rick Moranis. I shop, love that. Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> right, Tisha Campbell, Tashina Arnold, and the oh the, my God. the Supreme singing. Yes, they have. This, so first of all, I just re-downloaded and started. I just this is so top of top of mind for me. The like the duop on on Little Shop of Horrors as they narrate the whole yes. thing is first of all, it's all it's it's fantastic. Uh, there's also the like uh, I don't know who plays the plant. It's a but temptation. Like, it's one of the temptations. He's so good. Uh, the songs are so funny and dark. Um, there's a song about uh, that that um, uh, Martin, not oh. Martin Sheen, the other one. Martin Steve, Martin. Steve Martin. Steve, Steve Martin. Martin. Steve Martin plays a dentist, and there's a song right. about a sadist dentist, right. and it's like it's just about like how he like murders animals and then his mother's like i think you should be a dentist son it's <laughs> so funny right. skid row that song rick skid moranis is a good one yeah yep. uh, 
this is well, Ted. I you redeemed yourself, honestly. Here, <laughs> that's the one. Ted, Super Bowl <laughs> halftime show this year. Mm. Was it the best or second best Super Bowl halftime show ever? The um, only competition is the Prince show. Yeah. And I will right. say, I don't remember. Because you and I are the same generation. You say we it, we're all the same generation. The Prince show and then this one guys. with Dre is, uh, this is the music of our youth. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I you know, I, this may get me kicked off the, the pod, but I, I don't remember the Prince show. Um, it, I was, I, I've always appreciated Prince's art, but I've never been a big fan after the early 90s. Same. Yeah, and so the the music was, you know, if it he was anything... He played all of his early 90s stuff. It was like... He, the all all he played at the Super Bowl was all the stuff that we loved. It yeah. was all like, you know, I, I Doves Cry. And... Yeah. This one was excellent. And, it was you so know, good. I, I am... I That's my generation. I, I grew up on The Chronic and, and Doggy Style and all those. Um, the Chronic. It was very, very, very good. Really Trade 92. Yeah. 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 Oh. Senior year of high, that was my senior year of high school, 92 and a 93 for sure. Uh, it so was amazing. I, and I, having it be where, right, this is the other thing. One moment, Sarah. I'm sorry. No, I have to because okay. I'm geeking out of this. The, what I think is underappreciated is that this was happening in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, so these yeah. these guys came up and changed music from right there. Right. And so it's this the aspect of the homecoming to it, which makes it different than if it, the Super Bowl had been in New Orleans and they had done the show, right, right. is what made it so poignant and touching and amazing for, again, the Gen Xers like us, who, for whom this is our mother's milk, uh, it's just awesome. Oh, so awesome seeing Dre and Snoop, and it's a little sad seeing that they're old like us, but also comforting to see that they're old like us. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't watch the football game, uh, but when I saw I Twitter, you were going to a party. Uh, oh, I I did. I hung out, <laughs> right. talked to my. I did. I, I talked to my friends, and uh, then I we came home to put the kids to bed at seven thirty. And uh, anyway, so I was checking Twitter like after bedtime, and I was like, "Oh, everyone's talking about the halftime show." And then I showed my age by literally not being able to figure out how to find this halftime show anywhere. And so I was like making Twitter. I was like, Twitter, show me this halftime show everyone's talking about. Like, it's like there's all these sweet people who follow me on Twitter who are trying to send it to me. And like the NFL's taking it down as fast yes, as they can get exactly. it up on YouTube. So like, I, but I finally got to watch it. And, you know, there's this really – so I, I am uh, I am younger than you guys. I would just like to point that out by like at least seven years or so. But uh, I also grew up on a lot of these albums, although I was more like – Dre's next generation of mm. people, so like Eminem, Fifty uh, Cent, and and Fifty Cent, uh, who came came out uh, Jay -Z. upside down, right? <laughs> upside down. Yeah, Jay Z uh, person too, probably. Uh, but the the thing that so but so it, it did this thing that happens sometimes, right? So I was, I heard all the music, and so I immediately went and like got my old playlist and turned on. Um, I just like put it on shuffle through Eminem's. Like I had I have all his albums, and uh, I was like. Oh my God, he's very angry, young man. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if you recall, but like I was listening to some of the music and I was being like, oh, I, like as a forty as a forty one year old, I was like, this is the most violent thing I've ever listened to, and I don't like quite recall. I guess he is being, not respectful to women, not is, at all. He is not respectful None to women, them. to homosexuals, to his wife, <laughs> right. to he, I, he has a whole bunch of like songs that are supposed to be like odes to his daughter, and yeah. if you listen to them, they're these horrible like hits on his wife, and I was. Just 
just thinking about you know the the, the moment when when he kneeled uh, and and I was like oh Eminem look at you and then then I was like listening to music and I was like you this is not good this is not yeah. good young man uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is like a scandalized middle aged like, it's but it's such a time capsule Did like you he's tell like, him to get off your lawn <laughs> it's such a time capsule of him being like. He's singing about like Tipper Gore, you know, and like the the sort of '90s censorship. Fights. Liz Cheney. There's a there's a line in one of his hits about Liz Cheney, right? Your about husband. Lynn Cheney. Lynn Cheney. Lynn Cheney. Mm. Right, mom. right. Lynn Cheney. Sorry. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right. Sorry. But look, I'll say this: um, Dre's "The Chronic" was Ferguson before Ferguson. It was George Floyd before George Floyd. Like I remember that year. It was when, and after the the four officers were acquitted for beating the hell out of Rodney King, those protests. Is that album was that moment in a in a in a bottle? Yeah, all and about the Compton swap meet, right? exactly, mm-hmm. right. Yep. And so for my generation, when Trayvon Martin is killed, and then there's just like this drumbeat of stuff that's happening, um, you, it, it didn't like you felt like you had been here before, you know. And that that album bottled up the emotion in a way that I don't think anyone has quite captured the present moment. On on wax in the same I don't oh I guess I don't know I guess you don't do it on wax anymore you're catching like we can still say something. it yeah old old people are allowed to say <laughs> right. that no no one's done for this moment what what Dre did for that moment and it was filled with obscenities and drug use and all sorts of like misogyny etc but the anger in it wasn't was like an anger at a, a nation for failing to to ensure justice reached all its corners and opportunity reached all its corners and. For that reason, I think that's why it's a classic. And and then the music sonically was was something that you know we just hadn't heard before. So certainly in the mainstream. So it was absolutely a classic. And it was great to relive those those moments. Yeah, I uh, I I was gonna I was gonna let my thirteen year old kid listen to to Chronic, and so I just went because I was like this is like a year ago. I was like, oh yeah, I want to sort of broaden his horizons a little bit because he spends a lot of time with like. 80s and 90s metal and and rock and like a lot of Bon Jovi, a mm. lot of Smashing Pumpkins and ACDC, and uh, and I went and I listened to the Chronic and I was like, oh, I don't know if I can, mm-hmm. I don't know if I can let him listen to this. It's gotta be 18, you know? man. <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> like he he would listen to that and honestly, what I can tell you right now, his reaction would be like, oh, you can't say those words. Right. Like, what, what? why is he so, why doesn't he like gay people? Right. Why, you know, like, he would just like, why does he, he want to shoot everybody? Right. He wants to put he a bullet in every single this. person. Right. Yeah. What is this 187 that they keep talking know, about? Right. And, uh, <laughs> and there is a, there is an of the moment aspect to it that, yeah. uh, it's, you know, I think he does just have to be older and have some historical background before he can, can listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great show. Uh, Ted, you may, should I, I'm going solo camping this weekend. And so if I die, you probably have to sit in for me on the show for the rest of all time. So I'm glad you've got your feet wet. This no, is great. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. I need to sort of exercise my pod muscles um, so I can, you know, be more concise, more pithy. Um, but this is, it's fun. I, I love this stuff. That's what JBL Sarah. and I are known for, being concise and pithy. That's why these things always run an hour. And we have the same fights over and over again. <laughs> All right. Rebecca's going to take us home. Ted, thank you. Thank you you for having your niece, Lauren, right? That's your niece's name? That's right. Lauren joined us. Thanks for... Lauren, thanks for for coming on the show. You're great. Lauren's Lauren's brother, be a good big teenage brother to her. No more moodiness. Bye. Up in the morning, gotta be fresh, gotta go downstairs, gotta have my bowl, gotta have cereal. Yeah.
Come on, come on, y'all. Friday, Friday. 